Christians are a strange people. I can say that because I am one. A Christian, that is. Uh, though sometimes I'm a little strange, I'll admit. Um, Christians, we, we've long been viewed as very strange. Strange because we worship a, a crucified Savior, a crucified King. Christians worship a man who suffered and died a humiliating death. It, it's, it's almost oxymoronic. He gives life through his death. Strangely, yes, we, we, we do glory, rejoice in the cross, in that humiliating death. And this morning we consider the, the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that the Lord will be pleased to give us eyes of faith to see in the death of Jesus Christ the payment of our enormous debt to God. Let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, Matthew chapter 26. Um, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find Matthew chapter 26, beginning on page 831, 831. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of where we are in Matthew's gospel. Where are we in Matthew's gospel? Well, we're near the end. Um, we're, in fact, we're just a single day before Jesus is nailed to the cross. And what, Math, what has Matthew tried to stress so far in his gospel? What's, what's Matthew's main aim been? Uh, what do we need to keep in mind as we're, we're building to this climax of the true story of Jesus' life? Well, over and over again, Matthew has endeavored to communicate to his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. Matthew has gone to great lengths to show us who Jesus is. From his birth to his baptism, from his amazing works to his amazing words. In every way it is clear that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that the Old Testament pointed forward to. And if Jesus is that King, then that King, according to the Old Testament promises and prophecies, must die. In Matthew chapters 26 and 27, we will see the king prepare for his death, submit to his destiny, testify to his authority, and die for his people. In fact, those four points form the outline of the rest of the sermon, which I think you should be able to find provided on an insert there in your bulletin. Uh, let's begin by considering our first point. The king prepares for his death. And as we do, uh, read Matthew chapter 26, just verses 1 to 13. Matthew 26, verses 1 to 13. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an, an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, 
Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Matthew 26 opens by reminding us that Jesus has just concluded his teaching in the Olivet Discourse. In that teaching, Jesus explained to his disciples that he would return in glory to judge the world in righteousness. He would judge those who rejected him and his people. However, even though he would return to judge, what Jesus acknowledges in verse 2 is that he will first be judged. Once again, Jesus predicts his own death. He is personally and mentally preparing to die. Yes, he was explaining these things to bring comfort to his disciples, but if anything is clear throughout these verses and those that follow, it is that Jesus is consciously wrestling with his impending death. Alongside Jesus' prediction of his death, Matthew chronicles the preparations that others are making for his death. Verses 2-5 through five clearly portray the Jewish religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus and endeavoring to calculate the opportune moment. They want to avoid pursuing their plots during the, the feast of the Passover, but in verses 13-16, to 16, you'll notice that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples, offers to betray Jesus. He would find the right moment, a moment away from the clouds and under the cover of of darkness, the, the stealthiness that their plot required. As verse 16 makes clear, he was seeking, actively seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. And this betrayal would take planning and preparation, and it would also come at a cost, the cost of 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, he was preparing for his death. The Jewish religious leaders were preparing for his death, but someone else prepared his body for death. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13, we saw that scene, encountered an amazing scene where a woman anoints Jesus with a very expensive flask of ointment. The ointment was probably worth about a year's worth of wages for a working man. It's so incredibly ironic that the disciples, including Judas, see this anointing of Jesus as a waste of resources. They suggest that it could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus, he, he doesn't rebuke the disciples, nor does he agree with them. Instead, he explains to them what they should see and understand in these events. They should, they should see and understand that this woman has done a beautiful thing by preparing his body for burial. Jesus, he, he is preparing to die, and his disciples need to understand this and be prepared for it. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples through the Passover meal in Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 26 to 29. In these verses, in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, Matthew recounts for us Jesus reinterpreting the Passover meal in light of his coming death. And we all know this as the occasion of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Traditionally, through, throughout the several stages of the Passover meal, the, the head of the household would use the food and drink to explain what took place on the night of the Passover. He would begin by, by setting the context of his Jewish forefathers who were in bondage in Egypt. And as the, the meal progressed, he would recount how the Lord instructed the people of Israel to sacrifice a Passover lamb 
and to take its blood and to, to mark the doorposts of the home. On the night of the Passover, the Lord would literally pass over the homes that were marked with blood. And at midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in the homes that were not shielded by the blood of the Lamb. The night of Passover was the catalyst for freeing the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And with that in mind, let's read Jesus' reinterpretation of this Passover meal. Read verses 26 to 29 now. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, you see, he speaks of the elements of the Passover meal as referring to him and not necessarily to the events of the Passover, which was recounted in Exodus. The traditional Passover meal was, was filled with symbolism. And so it was not unusual to use symbolic terms as part of that meal. To be clear, this is anything but the traditional Passover meal. Jesus speaks when there's ordinarily supposed to be silence in the meal. And he reinterprets the events, the significance of the elements. The bread was to be broken in silence, but Jesus speaks. Here he tells the disciples that the bread symbolizes his body, which was what the Lord provided for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, the Apostle Paul clearly understands this to be the case as well. In his death, Jesus will provide his righteous life for his people. After all the disciples have received the cup, Jesus reinterprets its significance. Traditionally, the cup, the third of the meal, would have likely symbolized the sacrificial blood that confirmed and sealed the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. In verse 28, Jesus clearly said that this is his blood. It's not symbolic of the blood of bulls and goats, but of his blood. He would give his life and pour out his blood for the many who would turn from their sins and place their faith in him. This meal symbolizes what would take place on the cross. And in explaining this meal, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross work that he would soon undertake. That they needed to hide themselves under his blood. The blood of the Lamb. You know, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are both looking back to Jesus' cross work and looking forward to the day that we will feast with Him at the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the, 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 the meal that He spoke about when He would drink it new in the kingdom. That will be a great day of, of, of joy and celebration. So it, it, it is right that there is a, a certain amount of solemnity to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. And yet there, there should also be a certain amount of celebration to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. In the Supper, we proclaim His death and how sorry we are that He had to die for our sins. And yet in the Supper, we proclaim His death and how grateful we are that He did die for our sins. This meal, it not only prepared His disciples 
for his death, but it also prepares us for his return. While Jesus was preparing his disciples, Judas and the Jewish religious leaders had set in motion their plan and plot to deliver Jesus over to death. Jesus, he doesn't resist his destiny. He willingly receives it. So let's turn now and consider our second point. The king submits to his destiny. The king submits to his destiny. And read Matthew 26, verses 31 to 39. Matthew 26, begin there in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus and his disciples had made their way back to the Mount of Olives, back to the scene of his discourse where he promised that he would return in glory and judgment. Back on the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells his disciples that they would soon fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. He, the shepherd, will be struck, and they, the sheep, will be scattered. The disciples will fall away in the sense that they will physically abandon Jesus. They will, they will flee. They will run to safety in fear. They will desert Jesus. Peter Uh, is quick to reassure Jesus that he will certainly not abandon him. But just as quickly, Jesus underscores the certainty of his prediction by that phrase, truly, I say to you. And notice how quickly Peter and the disciples uh, will fulfill the promise of Zechariah 13, verse 7. It would only be a matter of hours. It will occur this very night, Jesus said. Peter and the disciples will try, they try to reply to Jesus with equal certainty. There's kind of this back and forth of, I'm certain this will happen. No, 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 I'm certain this. No, 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 I'm really, really, really certain this is going to happen. That's, there's, this is the kind of conversation they're having. They reply emphatically, no, we will not abandon you. But as we'll see shortly, Jesus was right. They, they would desert Jesus. And in one sense, the separation, the desertion, was only right. For Jesus had to bear the cross alone. And that is what weighs on him as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. The distress that Jesus is dealing with is unlike anything that we could ever grapple with. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has for all eternity been in a perfect relationship with God the Father, whom the Father has loved from all eternity, Jesus is about to be forsaken by his Father. 
he is about to endure the eternal wrath of God to be cut off from the land of the living. And he is about to do so as a perfectly sinless substitute for those who have sinned. This is why Jesus says in verse 38 that his soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Matthew, he, he details Jesus' agony as he falls to the ground and prays in anguish that this cup might pass from him. He uses a, a family term that carries with it an incredible intimacy and tenderness. He addresses Yahweh as his father. Jesus also uses the Old Testament language of, of the cup, which symbolizes the judgment of God. The cup of God's wrath is about to be poured out on him. Jesus expresses his own desire for this cup to be removed. And he was, he was certainly sincere in this prayer. He was troubled and distressed by God's coming wrath. And yet, he submitted to the will of the Father. And the reason that Jesus finds himself in this garden is because in the first garden, man chose to follow his own will rather than God's will. Jesus obeyed the Father in the garden where Adam did not. Jesus had to do it for us because we, just like Adam, would have taken the fruit. Jesus alone obeyed God the Father in the garden and that is what separates Him from every other human being that has ever walked this earth. And that is why He and He alone must drink this cup. Several times Jesus comes back to check in on the disciples and he finds them sleepy and drowsy each time. He must have felt so alone. In the greatest hours of his distress, his disciples were not even awake to support him, encourage him, and pray for him. Jesus returns to the disciples for the last time there in verse 45. And he points out in verse 46 that his betrayer, Judas, is at hand. In verses 46 to 56, we see Jesus, he is delivered to his destiny and deserted by his disciples. The betrayal is appropriately cloaked in darkness. It was so dark that Judas would have to identify the crowd with who, with who Jesus was with a very visible sign. A kiss was, was really actually a common greeting for a disciple to give to his rabbi or teacher. And through this kiss, Jesus made it obvious to the mob who was to be taken away and under guard. Mark's gospel, the, the original language of Mark's gospel, makes it clear that this was actually a really embellished kiss so that there was no doubt who was to be taken. John's gospel tells us that it was Peter who drew the sword and struck the servant of the high priest. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus miraculously healed the man's ear. All three synoptic gospels record Jesus confronting the crowd. Day after day, he had been publicly teaching and he never taught violence. But here the crowd was treating him as one who was a, a robber or a, a revolutionary. If you read verses 46 to 56 slowly and carefully, then one of the things that you should notice is Jesus is in control of the entire scene and situation. At every moment, he is in control of his destiny. It is Jesus who tells Judas, Judas, do what you came to do. It is Jesus who calms the violence, telling his disciples to put their swords away. 
It is Jesus who is persuaded that this must take place in order for the Scriptures to be fulfilled. The disciples all abandoned Jesus, just as He predicted, just as Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 predicted. Jesus is regarded as a transgressor by Judas and the mob, just as Isaiah 53, 12 predicted. The Scriptures are being fulfilled and Jesus is in complete control of His destiny. And the end of verse 56 makes clear The disciples, they deserted Jesus. They scattered just as he said they would. And the king, he has prepared for this moment, but it doesn't make his path to the cross any easier. Jesus would face trial after trial, and he would eventually have to testify so that his destiny of submitting to the Father's will and dying on the cross might be fulfilled. So let's turn now and consider Christ's testimony as we consider our our next point. The king testifies to his authority. Read Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you, Christ. Who is it that struck you? These events, they occur sometime late on Thursday night, Thursday evening. In verse 57, Matthew explains to us that Jesus brought to trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. When we read the four Gospels in harmony, we realize that Jesus actually endured six trials, three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. Matthew's Gospel only presents three of them in his Gospel, two Jewish trials and one Roman trial. Matthew is at pains to express that the Jewish leaders are rushing Jesus to the cross. And so he condenses uh, the events. When you consider how quickly they're really able to pull uh, this meeting together, it's quite amazing. But we must remember that they've been plotting to kill Jesus all along. This is on the top of their to-do list. And notice what Matthew says in verse 59. The religious leaders were seeking, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they had a purpose in mind already so that they might put him to death. 
Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus wasn't on trial before an objective jury. They had reached their conclusion before the trial had begun. And Matthew also wanted his readers to understand the nature of the testimony that was being offered against Jesus. Verse 60 makes clear that they brought many forward and that their testimony was false. Ironically, the Jewish the teachers of the Jewish law were both gladly hearing and openly spewing violations of the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness. All of this serves to underscore Jesus' innocence. They're grasping at straws until finally two men came forward who recalled Jesus' teaching about the temple, that it would be destroyed and raised again in three days. And it's at this point that the high priest stands up and he asks Jesus to respond. Up to this point, Jesus, he's refused to testify. Jesus, through his silence, is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. The entire trial profoundly proves that Jesus is innocent and at the same time that he is in fact the Messiah that the scriptures promised. But his innocence is not satisfying. Those gathered to condemn him wanted another verdict in innocence. And they pursued that verdict again and again. Their sinful pursuit blinded them to the reality that was before them. They failed to see the Messiah and King standing before them. Verse 63 tells us that the high priest Caiaphas, he tries yet again. He places Jesus under oath before the living God, saying, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus didn't have to make any reply. He's already stood before the shearers silent. He is the fulfillment of of Isaiah 53, 7, and his silence should have proved him that he is the Christ, which was involved in their question. Should have proved to the assembly that he was indeed God's Messiah. What's fascinating here is that Jesus' condemnation is not ultimately in the hands of this incompetent assembly that is gathered to condemn him. In one sense, if Jesus is to make it to the cross, he must condemn himself. And that is exactly what he does. The king testifies to his authority. Read verse 64. Again, Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' answer to Caiaphas first appears ambiguous, but it's actually in the original language it's a clear and affirmative answer. In Mark's gospel, his reply and acknowledgement is even more explicit. Jesus there says, I am. It's certainly clear that Jesus, he, he picks up the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And he applies them to himself. In Psalm 110, the Messiah is said to sit at the right hand of God. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is said to come with the clouds of heaven. Jesus seems to be saying that he will come with the authority of Yahweh to judge. One day, Jesus will judge the assembly that is gathered to judge him. The high priest and the gathered assembly think this is just too much. In fact, Caiaphas charges Jesus with blasphemy. 
It's most likely that Jesus' claim to the divine authority to judge is what Caiaphas and the others are so concerned about. Caiaphas, he calls quickly for a decision. The decision is rendered. He's guilty. Jesus is guilty of nothing more than being the Messiah. Matthew describes the assembly of this dissolving into less than a respectful meeting. Suddenly the hatred toward Jesus shifts from mere verbal abuse to physical abuse as well. Sadly, another scene of false witness, false testimony emerges in verses 69 to 75 where Peter is asked on several occasions whether or not he's one of Jesus' disciples. Peter denies Jesus three times. Three times he falsely testifies. And he even places himself under oath, swearing that he is not one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus, though, had spoken truly when he testified that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Matthew records the final Jewish trial of Jesus early on Friday morning in chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. This is where the official verdict and judgment was pursued and reached. You see, the, the, the rules of the Sanhedrin required um, that official decisions be made at certain times. It appears that the late um, that the ruling late at night was, uh, was one such restriction. And that's why when morning came, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Uh, they, were, they were such good rule keepers, weren't they? They couldn't even keep the own rules that their assembly had, had drawn up. They, no need for you know, a real trial at the right time. They had already had an illegitimate trial at an illegitimate trial, uh, time. They, they immediately, because they've already done this, they immediately reached an official decision and took Jesus straight to Pilate. Now before Matthew takes us to that trial before Pilate, interestingly enough, he inserts another scene. In, in, in chapter 27, verses 3 through 5, it becomes clear that Judas has gotten cold feet on his decision to hand Jesus over. He returns the money and even testifies in verse 4 that he has sinned by betraying innocent blood. Isn't that fascinating? Even Judas, even Judas recognizes and testifies to Jesus' innocence. And these men still forge ahead with their plans. And so Jesus, he stands before Pilate and once again gives testimony. Read Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 14. Now Jesus stood before the, the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate's questions, they, they parallel Caiaphas's earlier questions, but um, Pilate's put kind of more political spin on them. Uh, he, he wants to know if Jesus is the king of the Jews. The Jews of that day thought that the Messiah would be a political figure, that he would be a king. And so the Romans were always on guard against uh, political figures rising up amongst Jewish people. Jesus' answer to Pilate's question appears to be uh, an obscure one when Jesus finally kind of gets around to answer him. He says, again, you have said so. Jesus is actually playing on Pilate's words. 
Uh, John's Gospel chronicles a longer conversation between Jesus and Pilate where Jesus testifies that his kingdom is not of, of this world. Pilate no doubt finds it odd that the Jewish people who've been waiting for a, a messianic king to arrive, that they, they hate the very one who claimed that title. He also seems unconcerned about Jesus' claim to kingship given that his dominion is not of this world. Matthew almost portrays Pilate as, as concerned for Jesus there in verse 13. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Standing as the innocent one, as a sheep before his shears is silent, Jesus, he again makes no reply. And at this, Pilate is amazed. Normally, a man facing death would defend himself. He would want to get the truth out and correct any errors. But here Jesus makes no reply. Jesus is content to suffer the consequences of condemnation. His authoritative testimony has been sufficient. But his was not actually the last testimony. Even Pilate's wife testifies that he, that Jesus is a righteous man there in verse 19. And this testimony from Pilate's wife arises in a scene where Pilate is trying to offload responsibility for Jesus. Matthew mentions a tradition that the Jewish people and Pilate uh, had in verses 15 to 26. And the irony of this section is rich. On the one hand, Jesus has been wrongly accused of trying to take the Roman throne as king. And on the other hand, Barabbas is one who is guilty of insurrection, of attempting to overthrow Roman rule. With this in view, Pilate approaches the crowd. Pilate knows that the Jewish leaders want to get rid of Jesus for personal reasons. So he appeals to the larger crowd, hoping that Jesus' popularity will, with, with them, with the people, will free him. But Pilate, he clearly underestimates the religious leaders. They have already worked to position the crowd to secure their desired outcome. Then Pilate testifies to Jesus' innocence in the form of a question in verse 23. Why? What evil has he done? Presumes that he's innocent. Innocent. The answer is none, and Pilate knows it. Sadly, the crowd does not care about who is guilty and who is innocent, and they call for Pilate to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. An innocent man takes the place of a guilty man. Pilate washes his hands and tells the crowd that he was innocent of this man's blood. This is what Jesus has done for all of his people. He is innocent and we are guilty. And he has stepped into our place, been our substitute, offering himself on our behalf. The crowd wants Barabbas released. And they want Jesus crucified. Pilate washes his hands. And notice how the crowd re replies to Pilate. He, he washes his hands says, I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And look at verse 25. The crowd says, His blood be on us and on our children. If only they knew that His blood could cleanse and wash and save and redeem. If only that were a genuine prayer. Cry for salvation through Jesus. But sadly it is not. 
It's a cry for his crucifixion. His bloody crucifixion. And so now we turn to consider our final point. The king who dies for his people. Read Matthew 27 verses uh, 27 to 37. Just to 37. Matthew 27. Begin there in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. You know, most coronation services throughout the history of the world were reverence services. Those present in such a ceremony would would honor the monarch and publicly acknowledge his new title and position. The items given to the monarch were, were, such as a crown or a robe and a scepter, were were meant to be symbols. Symbols of what was occurring. The, the, The symbols given or placed upon the monarch were symbolic of handing the kingdom over to him. And receiving the authority to rule and reign. And from from what we read in these verses, this coronation ceremony, it's clear that this is far from a reverent affair. Jesus is dragged to a place where a whole battalion of soldiers, potentially 200 to 600 men, enjoy ridiculing one condemned man. All of this occurs after Jesus has been flogged. These soldiers are clearly deliberate in their attempt to mimic a coronation ceremony. When the crown of thorns comes to rest upon Jesus' head, he's crowned with the sign of the curse. When Adam sinned in the garden, God told him that because of his sin, the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles. And in fact, the scriptures, they portray thorns as a sign of pain and judgment. The soldiers, they do not stop. They pretend to honor him only before they spit on him, hit him, and lead him out to be crucified. Even in this mock coronation ceremony, the soldiers are beginning to fulfill Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7, and Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. Not only does the does this fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, but it also fulfills 
the prophecy that Jesus himself had told his disciples earlier in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, we read, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is a king, but not the king that the Jews or the Gentiles expected. He was a better king. He was a king who stood in the place of his people, and he represented them. He took their curse on his own head, and he bore all of their shame. Now, if you've had the privilege of reading the Bible for a any period of time, a length of time, uh, you should notice something striking should be missing from, from the passage. It's the details of Jesus' crucifixion. Did you notice that Matthew, he doesn't give any of the gory details of Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, if you go through and you read through all of the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, you won't get very many details you won't read much about that. And there are several reasons for this. For one, the authors are mostly focused on Jesus' death. For, for another, the word cross and the concept of crucifixion in the first century was not a subject you would openly discuss. So horrific was this form of death that people would hide their eyes from its sight. This punishment was so fierce and cruel that Roman citizens were usually exempt from it. It's significant to note that Jesus is brought outside the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. And Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus is being executed at a place marked by death. This is where people come to die. He also wants us to keep our attention on the fulfillment of the prophecies, specifically those contained in Psalm 22. Remember in verse 35, we're told that they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now listen to what Psalm 22 verses 17 and 18 says. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast Lots. In verses 37 to 44, Matthew records a number of people mocking Jesus. We see Pilate and the soldiers' mockery through, through Jesus' official charge that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. That sign proclaimed the truth. The two criminals next to Jesus and those who passed by joined in the mockery, again fulfilling the promise of Psalm 22, verses 2 through 7, and Psalm 109. Verse 25, where we read, I am the object of scorn to my accusers. And when they see me, they wag their heads. And then the chief priests, they, they join in mocking God's one true high priest who is offering the most precious sacrifice on behalf of his people, himself. If Jesus were to save himself, then he could save no one. No, he had to remain on that cross. And up to this point, we have only heard the voices of those who rejected and ridiculed Jesus. 
in verses 45 to 50, we finally hear the voice of the king. So read verses 45 to 50 now. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed to give to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus, he has been derided, denied, deserted. He was forsaken by everyone, including his father. And Matthew tells us that a, a supernatural darkness sets in around noon and lifts somewhere around three in the afternoon. This supernatural darkness brings to mind the ninth plague in Egypt. Just before the Lord set his people free from slavery, darkness sets in over land, a darkness that can be felt. The tenth plague, the final plague, required that the people of Israel sacrifice a Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb would shield them from coming, the coming wrath of God. It's the week of Passover in Jerusalem. A darkness has set in as Jesus, our Passover lamb, was crucified. The plague of God's wrath has come upon Jesus. And he was not shielded from it. He endured all of God's wrath. And that's why he utters in a loud voice the, the cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting the scriptures. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. But those gathered around, they don't understand why he's making this cry. They think he's calling Elijah, but he's not. He's calling out to one who's loved him for all eternity. His father. Father, why have you forsaken me? Something is going on in the relationship of Jesus and God the Father. Something profound, something unique, something never to be repeated again. To be forsaken is to be abandoned. And this, this forsaken was not the absence of the Father's presence in Jesus' earthly life, but the positive presence of the wrath of God the Father being poured out on His Son. For those three hours, for those three hours, Jesus endured the hell that you and I deserve because of our sin. He endured the eternal wrath of God for those three hours. For all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. Jesus bore all of the wrath that we deserve. And because Jesus 
was forsaken by God the Father. We don't have to be and will not be when we place our faith in Him. So friend, if you're, if you're here this morning and if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to consider Jesus' death again. Friend, God is, is angry at your sin. He is angry that you and I have mocked His kingship. He is perfectly holy. And He has made us to reflect His holiness. And yet we've all sinned against God. We've all failed to keep His commands. And in doing so, we've reflected a lie about God. That He's not holy. But God is just. His commands have been broken and He must punish sin. Must punish those who have broken His commands. And apart from Jesus, we are all in danger of facing His eternal and just wrath. Of being forever forsaken by Him. But in love, God sent His Son. The Father sent His Son, Jesus, to live the life that we ought to have lived, but haven't. And to die the death that we deserve. Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that Jesus satisfied the just requirements of God's law, that he propitiated, satisfied God's wrath for sin. So friend, stop forsaking God and forsake your sin. Repent and abandon your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that He died for you, bearing your God-forsakenness. Confess with the centurion there in verse 54 that Jesus truly was the Son of God, that He is your Savior and Lord. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus bore God's wrath for you, or what it means to believe in and follow Jesus, and I'd love to talk to you about this good news. That he gave his life for sinners like you and me. There's nothing I'd rather talk to you about than that. Or talk with your friend or family member that you came here with this morning. The incredible proof that this forsakenness came to an end. And that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God to its fullest extent. Is found in verse 51. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a supernatural act of God. Because of man's sin, God had to erect barriers to keep men from coming too close to His holy presence. In the temple, a series of, of curtains were erected, serving effectively as walls to protect the people from God. At the garden, God set two angels with flaming swords. Jesus went through the flaming sword of God's wrath to bring us back. God. The curtain is torn. The high priest Jesus offered the final sacrifice. The way to God is now open to all. No longer through the curtain in the temple, but through Christ. Jesus was crowned, crucified. And his earthly life came to a close when he yielded up his spirit. As verse 50 makes clear, completely in control, even to the point of his death. 
In verses 55 to 66, we, we learn that his dead body was claimed by Joseph of Arimathea and closed in a tomb. Joseph treated the body of Jesus as a dead body, not only by wrapping it in linen cloth, but by putting his body in the place where dead bodies went in that day and age, in a tomb. Matthew also notes that a few of Jesus' disciples were there watching his burial. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Jesus' disciples and followers knew that Jesus was dead. They saw his body wrapped in cloth and laid in a tomb. They even saw it sealed with a large boulder so that the words of one children's Bible, no one could get in or out. But he did. Praise God, he did. That stone that sealed Jesus' tomb, it would have been so massive that several grown men would have had to roll it out of place if it were to be moved. Surprisingly, it's not until the next day, Saturday, that the Jewish authorities ask Pilate to place a guard at the tomb. This speaks to the authenticity of Matthew's account, as well as underscoring the fact that Jesus really had died. Not only did his disciples think he was dead, but so did the Jewish religious authorities. Even if a man who had been beaten and crucified survived, he could not move that stone, nor could he remove the wax seal mentioned in verse 66, nor could he overpower the guards. Jesus really was dead. Even the religious leaders knew it. Their concern was not that he would rise, but that his body would be stolen. And then his disciples would put forward a man who, who looked like him, acted like him, spoke like him, dressed like him, a person who was a fraud. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. And he was buried. And this is where we come back to where we began. We began this morning by reflecting on the fact that Christians are strange people. We worship a crucified Messiah and King. In Matthew 26 and 27, we have seen King Jesus prepare for his death, submit to his destiny, testify to his authority, and die for his people. J.C. Ryle once said, Let us ever glory in the cross of Christ. Let us regard it as the source of all of our hopes and the foundation of all of our peace. Ignorance and unbelief may see nothing in the sufferings of Calvary but the cruel martyrdom of an innocent person. Faith will look far deeper. Faith will see in the death of Jesus the payment of man's enormous debt to God and the complete salvation of all who believe. Indeed, may we ever glory in the cross and resurrection of our Savior and King. Let's pray together.